Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about media and virtual production. And our second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. And today we're going to talk about what we want to spend a little bit more time on. So we're going to be talking brainstorming. We do this occasionally about every quarter where we go, okay, well, what do we want to, what, what do we want this day to be? So, um, so we're going to talk a little bit about that. So if you've got ideas, save those up. Use the Q&A as a way to add suggestions as well well as questions. But really, for the second hour, think about suggesting things that you'd like to see around computer graphics. So 2D computer graphics, motion graphics, 3D graphics, those types of graphics, AR, VR, all of those things are, are what we're talking about on Tuesdays. And so we want to know what you want us to cover. Um, so go ahead and start throwing those in and tag those for the second hour. Now, of course, if you're watching this and you don't, and you're not actually in uh, our Q&A system, Akana, um, you can actually ask questions now with just a URL or a QR code, which hopefully we'll put up soon. <laughs> We're still getting the mechanics working of that. Um, but uh, but basically, um, if you look at the QR code that will you'll see appear occasionally during the show, uh, or just go to askofficehours.com, uh, you can ask questions. Um, and those will be fed into our system over time. Uh, we kind of feed them in there. There's the, there's the, uh, the thing right there. Right there, that's it. So askofficehours.com. Um, so anyway, so uh, go ahead and ask uh, you ask your questions there as well. And you can do that 24-7. So if you see this video later on YouTube and you pop, a question pops up, uh, you can just ask it then. It'll go into our queue and we'll add it in in the morning. So, um, so hopefully you'll get a chance to use that. All right, let's go ahead and jump into the questions. Mitch, what do we have? Thank you, Alex. Alexander Knight from Port Coquitlam, BC, Canada. Sorry. My Zoom business account supports 720p. Has anyone tested the Mealy Quieter 3 PC and get this resolution without issues? Go ahead, Courtney. I think I think I've actually joined office hours occasionally from my Quieter 3 when my Dell went down. I built a little base for it, see, so it could stand up right now. Um, but yeah, it and the only problem with 1080p is that Zoom doesn't allow it. It can actually do that as well, uh, but it shouldn't be able to handle 720p in Zoom without any problems. Next question, Mike Edwards in Brooklyn, New York. Morning, everyone. What other issues should I look for other than a faulty cable that uh, would cause uh, intermittent blackouts? About five to seven minutes on an Ursa G2 going into an extreme ISO. 1080p setting, SDI converted to HDMI using BM Blackmagic converters. Thank you. Go ahead, Jason. Mm, um, well, that's tricky. I would start by monitoring every single step of the way. Like, get a codec, get, a, get, get you know, the, the live view kind of thing, and plug what? in and check. Check the whole way through the, the, um, the output. After that, I would be, I'd be concerned that you have some sort of some sort of anomaly. I, I, I don't know. And John, your mic's open. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Uh, a lot of times, these issues that happen every five to seven minutes or ten minutes is the frame rate is a, a frame rate discordance between the the camera and the. Um, and the ATEM. The ATEM auto-synchronizes, uh, you know, resynchronizes vertical sync on the way in. But sometimes if it's too far out, it'll keep, it'll, it buffers because it gets behind and then the buffer will overflow and then it can rejigger and then lose sync and sometimes it'll just go black. That may be what the problem is. So check the frame rate on your Ursa G2 to make sure it's at a frame rate. It's set to the same frame rate that your ATEM's main frame rate is set to. Next question. 
Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas, asking, Apple has a premium headset. Meta and LG are drag racing to catch up with several new headsets. Will they catch up? Go ahead, Jason. It doesn't matter. Um, Meta has already had a shot at this, and um, they didn't even catch up to the prototype. As far as uh, LG is concerned, no. I mean, not, not for the entire vertical that Apple's after capturing. Yeah, I... You know, I know a lot of people, I think the, the real challenge is it's hard to build a compelling experience for a, a, a budget headset. It takes a lot to do this. And I, so, so I think that that's going to be the real challenge. Um, while Apple, uh, you know, I was reading, I was doing some research and I was reading about um, all the things that people said about the iPhone um, that when it first came out, a lot of it was about how expensive it was and how no one was going to use it and how it was all going to sound exactly like what we're saying right now about the headset because it's $3,500, starting at 3500 probably more. Um, and, and so I think that the problem they're going to have is that they're going to keep on trying to save money and not have it be there. And I think that's going to be, it's going to be hard to do the same thing. And once someone puts the headset on, it's going to be hard to go back to something that is not that good. Um, you know, because it really, Apple's headset, I would say, as someone who's been working on this for over a decade, is about the minimum requirement to really make it useful. <laughs> you know, like, you know, I think that the Quests have been fine and, and a lot of these other ones, but the, the attempt to make it less expensive makes it not a great experience. And so people can't see the vision of why anyone would use this because most of the stuff has been not very good. So so I think that that's the real challenge um, is that, and Apple still, I would say, is not... Achieving, I think that getting to 120 frames a second makes a difference. I think that getting to you know 6K or 8K per eye um, makes a difference, and Apple's not there yet either. So I think that this is, um, so I th I think Apple is just just starting to go into where it needs to go. The other challenge they're going to have is the op the development platform. So Apple has an entire development platform and a lot of developers that already know how to use it, and that's probably a larger lift than the quality of the headset is how will you develop for the headset and what are all the creature comforts, data processing, all the things that are necessary, not just the the unreal part of the system, but all the substructures that are supporting it. Um, that has proven to be very difficult for Meta. Uh, and I think that most likely LG uh, and Meta will still have challenges with that. I do hope that they do well so that they keep on pushing Apple forward. And I'm happy to use their products if they get to a point where, you know, I don't have any, it doesn't have to be Apple from, from my perspective. I would love to see um, a very uh, vigorous market here because I think that there's a lot of opportunity. Go ahead, Courtney. I haven't looked at the specs on this new one, but I have a, I, LG is probably just designing the higher resolution L, uh, OLED screens for it. And it says it's VR, but it doesn't mention AR, I don't think, in the article. So <clears throat> maybe it's not going to completely compete with uh, Apple's uh, product because it doesn't have uh, AR. It's mainly just for VR stuff and hooks up to a PC rather than being self-contained. Maybe it'll be self-contained. We haven't seen anything yet, but... Uh, yeah, and I, 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 will, I will say that I think that, that, you know, LG has a better chance because it's partnered with Meta. Meta obviously has a lot of uh, experience experimenting in this area. So, you know, the big advantage that Meta has is just time. You know, they've done a lot. They know a lot of things that work and don't work. I think that the, the, the advantage that Apple has is that they're not trying to do it cheaply, um, which gives them a lot more headroom. And also that they have, an, they have a, a huge development platform that is already kind of pre-built. So um, I think I think I do think it's going to come down to a meta or a Apple solution. I don't know if anyone else can catch up because the amount of uh, 
resources required to do this is immense. You know, to generate the content and to build the the headsets. This is this is these are big boy games. I guess we would say big person game, a big person game, big company game. Uh, there's just so much infrastructure to 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 make this actually happen that I don't think I think if anyone is going to get into the bet market, they'd have to get in very very soon, or it'd be very hard for them to to put the investment in to make it work. Um, next question. John Preto in Las Vegas, Nevada. In this month's Stream Media Magazine, they discuss versatile video coding, VVC. Anybody believe they have a chance to compete versus AV1? Go, John. What's really funny in this article is they talk about VVC. Nowhere do they define what VVC means. VVC is the next generation of H.266, and it's not supposed to be out, and it's less efficient than AV1, and you have to pay the licensing fees. I think it's doomed. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's really hard because most of the companies are trying to all move to AV1, you know, whether it's, you know, we, we you know, Apple and Google and many others are, are, are moving there. You have all these big companies that just don't want, the licensing is so absurd for 265 and was fairly absurd for 264. And then, then they just went, they, they, they took all the crazy, all the crazy juice and um, went to 265 and made it super complicated and, and painful to use. Apple was able to differentiate itself by paying that license, but everyone else kind of balked um, at, at the whole process. So I think that, and there's just so much development that you're not allowed to touch anything that has 265 in it because no one wants to touch that that licensing. So I think that it's going anything that's going to require licensing is going to have a really hard time um, moving forward with some with all the companies already investing and put and heavily pressing down on a on a, on a different format. Even if the format was more efficient than AV1, I think it would have a hard time competing. Uh, AV1 just has to be good enough to pass it because of the whole licensing issue. Uh, Next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. To stay competitive in the crowded market for video conferencing, Zoom is updating and rebranding several of its AI-powered features, including the generative AI assistant, formerly known as Zoom IQ. Will we see real-time feedback from AI in office hours? You know, I'm, I, I, I've been thinking about this a lot over the weekend, actually. I was working on something, so I was thinking about this a lot. And I think that what I'm really interested in is having AI help process things, lot large numbers of things, help me think about those things. But I don't really, I, I'm starting to realize that I don't really want AI to generate content for me. You know, like I know that sounds crazy. Like I, I mid-journey on pictures, but I mean from text for some reason I have a, a, an aversion to that. Um, and uh, of, of AI-generated text. And I think that we're going to, I think I'm probably not going to be the only one. Usually I'm a little ahead on my feelings about things, but I'm not usually wrong. Um, and so I think that you're going to see a pushback um, over time against AI-driven content. You know, I think that there's going to be this kind of people, you know, being able to try to certify that it's, human made, <laughs> you know, like, like organic, <laughs> you know, like, and, and, uh, and, and I think that that's, I think you're going to start to see some of that starting to crop up. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I think the, as far as generative AI, then maybe the first thing they'll start to do is, uh, is eye contact, which several companies have shown uh, works to track and move your eye contact directly into the lens. Even if you're not, even if you're looking down at something, it'll fix that. Uh, to make it make make it look uh, like you're a little more attentive than you actually are in Zoom conferences, that would be a good good thing to have. Yeah, I, I think it'll. So far, every test I've seen with eye contact works 95 percent of the time. So it works really well, and there's some occlusion, and then the eye does this weird thing, 
and then you can't stop looking at it. Like you just can't, like you're just like, it looks, you know, the eye just flickers and then you know that they're using it and it weirds you out. Like that's the problem with all the little tech things to do that is that if it doesn't, if it flickers at all, and then if you know it's happening, it just feels very artificial. I think that, again, I think that there's, there's going to be a, a movement and a place for, hey, let's not, let's not do that in the same way that we don't really like virtual backgrounds. You have Bill. to have it program in blinks every now and then or That's otherwise exactly. you look, look like a zombie. <laughs> exactly. Go ahead, Bill. Uh, it's a gross oversimplification, but I always think of AI as a system of giant averaging over these huge data sets. And averaging things means that the similarities end up driving the results rather than the distinctions. When we look at people who are hugely talented, who do amazing things, the most amazing people are the ones who already always make you look at them and go, wow, I've never seen anything like that before. And that kind of moves the needle in artistic expression. So I think there is a primary conflict between the idea of AI, which is averaging across massive data sets, and the unique expressions that people have come up with when they try to do something that's very different than anything that's come before. Not saying they succeed in that. And a lot of art is to one direction or another derivative. But each person brings their own special sauce to it because of their special life experiences along the way and talents. And I just don't think we're ever going to get rid of that. That's how I feel about it. Might be wrong. Yeah. And. And to be clear, I, I think that Zoom can do a lot with AI. I mean, I think that they could do a lot as an assistant. I use ChatGPT all the time, but not to generate anything. So I, I do it, to t I talk to it. Let me not talk to it, but I type to it. Like, tell me about this or explain this. The, the number one thing when I'm trying to explain something to someone where I'm thinking about training or I'm thinking about how to explain something to someone is I will say, you are an expert in this field, whatever field that is. Explain, to the, explain this to me like I'm a fifth grader, like I'm a like I'm a high, uh, 12th grader, like I'm a college student. I'll have it do these, like an iteration, and I'll look at how it, how it progresses through those things, and it just gives me ideas on how to talk about something. Um, it uses metaphors, it uses process, it uses a lot of other things, and so I find it easy to, and, and I think that in that case, Zoom IQ could do a lot, but I think that we have to be careful. I think, and I think that as far as sorting through things and managing large numbers of things effectively and handing them back to humans, I think that that's good. And I think a lot of my basis for this is, you know, what we really found with Hangouts, less than not so much Zoom, was that the computer didn't do a very good job of editing and the human did a, a similarly okay job at editing. There just weren't very many tools for it. But when you combine them, when the when we get that balance right and the AI is handing things to the human and doing things that the human is still tweaking, you ended up with something really special. So it's, it is this dance between the two that we have to figure out. Next question. Punsak Dorje from Dharamshala, India, asking, Greetings. While I watched the English Premier League, I noticed that experts during the halftime were wearing two lav mics pointed downwards. Explain, please. Go, Jason. Sure. Um, so two things here. Why two and why are they pointed downwards? Two is most commonly used for failover and the downward is making use of the fact that most lavalier microphones are um, omnidirectional. So you can invert them and you will get no, um, no hisses or lip smacks or fewer from, um, from somebody who just tends to, to breathe and perform loudly. Uh, uh, go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, I've seen that a lot on the BBC. They have them pointed straight down. I think they uh, eliminate plosives very quickly 
by getting the uh, uh, the main area of the pattern in the chest area where it needs to be. Yep, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, what they said, uh, plus the fact that uh, with a, a dual-mount clip, if uh, you've got two people talking to next next to each other, you usually want to put the mic on the side next to the person that they might be talking to next to them. So if it uh, is already pre-rigged and you put the clip on the other side, you flip it upside down. Uh, so uh, that may be the reason. Yeah, I think that the BBC, from my uh, observing, almost always puts it in the middle and almost always puts it in 99.9% time, points it down to, again, avoid plosives, I think. I, I really felt like... I always feel like I can hear the paper more um, on you hear them shuffling paper more because it's pointed down, but the pattern does not support that theory. Like it should an omni uh, an omnidirectional mic should not really be that much different on the bottom as it is on the top. Go ahead, Courtney. Also, there are side address microphones like the trams that uh, doesn't matter. You can rotate them up or down because they are always pointed out front. They're omnidirectional yeah. anyway. But I don't think that that that's the BBC has. Doesn't I don't think uses those. I think it uses no, the, but it there uses are the ones a that I can point, variety of them, point yeah. downward. Yeah, go ahead, Chris. English Premier League also uses um, the Coles lip mic. Yeah, which is a interesting creature. There was a there was an incident a while ago where Lester Holt was using one on like the Today Show because he was broadcasting from the from England, and John Stewart had a heyday making fun of him for this. It's been around it's a for a long time. It's been it's around. A weird you put it up looking, against your upper lip and you start talking, and it, it, it it's is, just not camera friendly. Looks like he's vaping. So not camera friendly. <laughs> it <laughs> it, it solves all your sync issues though, because you can never <laughs> tell when they're out of sync. Right? Yeah. It's such an absurd looking mic, but it works really well in races and so on and so forth. Uh, next question. Next question from Ivan Gorgovich in San Diego, California. Das or Nas? What's your preference for editing? As always, I would say it depends. Uh, one of the things that I, I am almost always, and this is DAS or NAS, direct, direct attached storage or network attached storage. And I will almost always use direct for editing, mostly because I don't work on things that I need a lot of editors to work on or a lot of people contributing to. So where you get the advantage of a network attached storage is really when you have a lot of users. So they're, they're going to have shared assets. They're going to have uh, shared storage. They're going to have a lot of those other things. And that becomes, you know, like, uh, you know, something like a jellyfish is going to be a very large network attached storage. And you're going to, and, and you need to make sure that your entire system is going to support that. So you have to have minimum of 10 gig connections between, between everything that's there. Um, you have to have a drive system that's capable of it, but you can have a lot of editors all sharing one very large uh, storage and that and, and be able to trade things back and forth with each other. Um, so if you have, especially if you have people that are, you know, in, in cases that I've seen NAS work really well, got a bunch of machines that are capturing a bunch of content all live and they're capturing to it. Then we have editors that can sit down at any, any location, open up that file system and edit it. Then they're going to drop that edit, render it back to that shared attached and it's going to go through compression and get uploaded or something like that like a net at, a, at an event at a conference that's a really popular one um, to make that actually work so those are the kind of things that i think where you see um, nas work really well on a day-to-day -day basis i'd rather you know there's so many little glitches that you end up sitting there noodling with um, that you that i tend you know with a nas that i tend to just like a direct attached storage when i'm working um, go ahead chris couple things uh Totally agree. Um, you know, all I do is edit. Um, my two main drives are an 80 terabyte QNAP, and I believe it's a 64 terabyte uh, OWC drive. I'm looking 
between my monitors here because I can kind of see it. Um, I am uh, in a new location here. I'm about 95% moved into the new location. And I will tell you, I haven't bothered moving the QNAP yet. I need to. I'll probably do it this week. But um, I'm not a big fan of the network attached just because it's so much more complicated. But if you have to work in a user group, you need to have that. I'd also like to friend uh, a little friendly plug for our friend Felipe. Felipe is starting a new business where he is building a file sharing online system for editors. And uh, I'm very intrigued by it. I know of it. I haven't gotten the full lowdown from him, but uh, he's working very closely with uh, ISPs. He's, he's not a big fan of the Google, so he's going or uh, Amazon. So he's, I think he's trying to stay off of Amazon. And it may not be a giant tool like Frame, but uh, coming from Felipe, I will tell you, it'll be a, a good tool. 100% agree. Good, Bill. Me too. Philip's a smart guy, and that should be really interesting to look at. To me, I put it, remember the Steve Jobs four squares and do the product fit in the four squares? For me, it's short form or long form is an individual or collaborative. If it's short form individual, it's all going to stay on my main machine, uh, particularly with fast SSDs today of capacity that are inexpensive. You can put a pretty large project just on your home machine. And if you're individual and don't have to collaborate with others, that's always going to be the fastest, most responsive system because this RAM in these new machines is just super fast. When you get into, I need to work with others in the collaborative workspace, then you're at network attached storage because of the sharing. And as the projects get longer and you can't comfortably buy enough memory in your host computer to do it, that's when you want to look outside. But 99% of my projects I can do on this laptop. The bigger last, well, not 90, maybe 80%. The last 20% have to have external storage. And it's generically fast enough, unless you're doing that collaborative thing, whole different ballgame. Go, Jason. Yeah, it, in, in a sentence, DAS for editing, NAS for archive, unless you have all of the money. And a reminder that you can you can ask questions throughout the hour uh, in Makana, so you can ask them there. Uh, make sure to vote on the questions because that does drive the order in which we uh, talk about them and oftentimes how long we talk about them. So uh, your voting really matters within that. You can also use uh, this right there, right there, it's right right there. Uh, that is the QR code. And it's askofficehours.com. So you can just go to off, askofficehours.com. But if you want to use the QR code, you can. Um, there, you don't have to log in. You don't have to do anything else. You can just throw questions into the system. So go ahead and try that. And you can do that 24-7. So if you're watching this on YouTube, you can go ahead and throw, uh, you know, throw uh, your questions in there um, at any time that you feel the need. Uh, go ahead, Chris. I'd also like to point out about the QR code. If you're watching this on YouTube later, we haven't completely mastered the whole time travel thing. So asking a question for this particular show is probably a bad idea. <laughs> but general questions. Don't, 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 don't put questions in for the second hour yet. We're working on that. We're working on it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, next question. Jason Rubbershaw from Sarasota, Florida asks, when live streaming an eclipse, what kind of filter or gear would you recommend? Cameras and camera settings. Uh, go ahead, Mitchell. Well, there's a lot of things to use. I'll just uh, keep it to maybe a Sony camera, an FX series, FX9, FX6, and a neutral density adjustable filter would be helpful. Go, Jason. The last time I photographed an eclipse, it was a Canon 5D Mark III, uh, Celestron... 
uh, advanced VX equatorial tracking mount, uh, two and a half X PowerMate tele extender, and um, yeah, and and a really really long lens. We're talking six hundred and fifty millimeters, and um, yeah, it's it's not easy, and uh, you need to research this before you if you want to get it right. Good, Chris. So. In terms of broadcasting an eclipse, I would use burn, excuse me, Burning Man as an example. If you think about all the footage you've ever seen of Burning Man, a very small percentage of it is the man burning. It's the festival. It's the people. And having been to, I traveled great distances. I traveled thousands of miles to go see a total eclipse in Australia years ago. Uh it is the festival of the people that gather that is what you really want to cover. There's going to be a big shadow. Yep, there's going to be the ring. Yep, I'm sure the camera people will figure out a way to do that. But in terms of coverage, you need to cover the festival, the event, the people. It is a really, it's a unique gathering of passionate people that travel hundreds of miles, to, if not thousands, to participate in the event of standing in a shadow. And it, it has to be covered as such. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, what was said before, an auto ISO might be a good thing to employ as well. Because remember, if you're in the area of totality, uh, until it becomes total, it's quite bright. You're going to need the, all that neutral density in there to see an image in there. Otherwise, it just washes out. But once it reaches totality, you want to see the corona, which is fairly low. So you have to open up considerably uh, once it reaches totality to see the corona surrounding it. So if you're using a neutral density filter and you're mounted on a telescope, you got to make sure that it uh, can be removed easily without interrupting your shot. So internal neutral density filters are, or uh, adjustable neutral density filters would be a good choice. Yeah, and it is, a, when we talk about ND, you're talking about nearly cutting out almost all the light <laughs> when you're pointing point up in that direction. Um, this was the, I think I have the kit here. This was us setting up for the last one. Um, so let's see if I can do this here. There you go. So this is this is uh, Kevin's rig that he had set up here. So this was the, tr you can see the tracking module. Uh, down here, and then um, and then we were, but this is just us testing testing that process beforehand. Uh, in this case, we rented out a little farm <laughs> that we could all we could put tents all around it. Uh, so, but um, but anyway, so we're gonna we'll, we'll get Kevin on and talk a little bit about it as well uh, because it's um, he's the one that really architected what we did when we were shooting it. And to Chris's point, most of the show, of course, is all about eclipses and the process and the science. So what we had was uh, we had a social media guest um, that was hosting it, and then we had an astronaut. <laughs> so, so we had an astronaut talking. Um, it's nice and to have an astronaut on it's, call. Nice, it's always nice to have an astronaut when you're talking about space. So anyway, so um, so we had an astronaut that was uh, with that joined us for the show. And so, you know, of course, it's an hour and a half show that's punctuated by 90 seconds of eclipse. But, you know, but there was a lot of discussion about it and question and answer and process. And so I think that when we think about the coverage of it, I, I really hope to get a bunch of, 
you know, we're at a, maybe a couple of different places. I think that we could do a stream that was six to nine hours long or, or something where we're covering different locations, having people post it in. You have to remember that we're going from location to location to location. So it'll take time um, to get there. It might not be six to nine, but it might be three to four hours long. But we have the idea is that we get a bunch of space experts, you know, that are coming in from different locations and we make it a big, you know, uh, geek fest. You could do like a package about like who traveled the longest distance. You're going to see people like yeah. I can remember when I was in San Jose, uh, uh, South Africa. I don't know why I said San Jose. Uh, there was San a, Jose, South Africa. There, uh, six and one, half a dozen of the Aussies. <laughs> um, the uh, there was this one guy who um, had a T-shirt on that said Mexico City. 1972, and then it had this Eclipse logo on it. Now, keep in mind, I did this in 2003, so this is like a 30-year-old T-shirt. Clearly, he was a much smaller man in 1972. <laughs> right, right, right. But but you see you see a lot of that. You right. can have shots of like little kids doing pinhole things. You can have mm-hmm. talk to people about the gear that they bring because you'll find all these camera nerds coming out at it. Regardless of what you bring, if you go to a good location, there's going to be somebody there with gear much better than what you brought. These people are amazingly passionate about it. And, and, and it's and you, just great and, philosophical talking. I mean, why do yeah. eclipses exist? I could do, I could do an hour mm-hmm. on the philosophy of it. Yeah. It's weird. Yeah. And I, and I think that you're, you're right that, um, and you realize why it's a big deal to everyone. One, it, it's a big deal to anyone who's seen a, a total eclipse. It's just, a, it's a, it is a, you know, you only get to do it a couple times in your lifetime and it's intense. It's an intense feeling um, when you see it. It's it's so anyway. So everyone should prepare. We're gonna probably sooner than later do a kind of a coverage of how we did the coverage that we did. Uh, break it down a little bit. Brain start brainstorming now for April eighth is uh, where it's cutting through the U.S. And uh, there's there's one every couple of years somewhere in the world. So maybe we, we turn it into something we do every every year or two somewhere in the world would be kind of fun. Uh, next question from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Paul asks, can uh, Large language modules like GPT-4 have an equalizing effect, boosting less skilled workers, potentially leveling the human capital playing field. Go ahead, John. So my perspective on this question is what's going to happen is the transition of workers from old paradigms to new paradigms, just like the typing pools. Remember when companies had typing pools and if you didn't learn word processing, you didn't evolve? Same thing's happening here. Yes, uh, the the, the bottom line in my presentations when I do my speech on AI is AI is not going to replace humans. The, the guy that learns or the person that learns AI is going to replace people. So learn the, learn the technology and move forward. Yeah, I think that the, the, the thing is, is that it, it probably will do more to boast, boost people who are already experts to do their work better you know, and faster than it will boast, boost people who... Uh, don't know as much. I think that's the, re- I mean, it helps you learn faster. I, like, again, I'm learning very fast using things like ChatGPT um, to like explore ideas. I then verify all that with, but I know more about what I want to ask after I've gone back and forth with ChatGPT. Um, and I think that also when I give ChatGPT a solid um, source and destination, that seems to be the thing that I have to do with ChatGPT, which is uh, you are this and and you're speaking to this and I find that it hallucinates a lot less when it knows 
those two things. Uh, go ahead, Chris. Yeah, John, your comment, uh, your hypothesis of uh, AI is not going to replace you, but the guy who uses AI is going to replace you. I think I think what you kind of need to do, however, is extend that out another ten or fifteen years. You know, five well, mechanization. Years, mechanization. Five years of ago, all kinds. we didn't exa- We didn't even imagine uh, uh, what's it called, mid journey. And I, I, I just want to, I just want to always underline the hypocrisy of all of this. We've been using machines to to replace blue collar workers for the last, you know, hundred and fifty years. But when it starts coming for the white collar workers, everyone's like, oh. <laughs> like you know, like I'm sorry, but there's a little bit of a a little bit of a hypocrisy here. Where suddenly everyone's worried that they could come for anyone, but they, but we've been taking away people's jobs with machines for hundred and fifty years. Maybe I mean the Luddites were fighting yeah, about but, it back then. But so. Alex, drive through the Midwest U.S and look at the devastation of these communities that are that are shut down because of as, that as automation a, and machines. Oh no, I understand that, but I think that the thing is, is that there. It's also um, it's a whole other. We're getting very very close to the third rail here, but but what I will say is, as someone You're who welcome. grew up, <laughs> as someone who grew up in a in a area, Western Pennsylvania, that's been impacted definitely by that, and my town is you know struggling to uh, you know make everything work. Um, there still is innovation. People are still making money in, in some areas there. And it, it, it oftentimes in most of those areas, it's, it's a lack of um, structure, structural movement forward. Um, and I think that in many cases, it's bandwidth. <laughs> I'm just going to keep on saying this. Like it is like my parents, before I put, before I dropped a, um, a Starlink there, they were getting one meg up and down. There was nothing they could do nothing that they could do to get more than one meg. It is a gorgeous location. Like my parents live in 55 acres of some of the nicest land you'll ever see. <laughs> you know, like, and there's a lake out back. It's, it's an amazing experience. And, uh, and you get one meg a second, you know? And so people would, I think people would continue to flock, especially post-COVID, flock to all these areas and help rebuild them and, and have it move forward. But you have, the, you know, the telecommunications companies have wrapped everything up into a little ball, you know, and makes it, and you know, and we need to like have somebody decisively just start, you know, kicking teeth in, you know, like uh, around this because it's really damaging rural America to not have, not be able to be connected to the rest of the world, you know, like, and, and, and we have to, all it takes is $100,000 a month for every poll that isn't released when poll access is required. That's it. That one law. And suddenly, all of rural America will open up. <laughs> you know, go ahead, Bill. Uh, just really quickly, because I was at a party this weekend, and I was talking to a guy who's in biomedical engineering. There's a lot of that in San Diego here. And I asked him what he does. He says, well, I basically farm stem cells, um, non-controversial ones. But I asked him, you know, so what's your job like? He said, honestly, I could be working at a fish store because even though I have a biomedical degree, most of the stuff has been automated now to the point where I have to go in and just assess all the lines of stem cells that we're going for research and just make sure that nothing is in trouble. And I, it caused me to think, wow, this trend toward more artificial large language model intel is going to not just come for the jobs of the people 
working at the gas station. It's going to come for scientists and other people, too. This is probably more disruptive than even I'm thinking, well, which is an interesting conversation. The funny thing is, it's probably going to come less for the people at the gas station or something like that than yeah. it is for the people yeah. that are up there. Because um, if you're a plumber, it's really hard to replace you with AI. <laughs> you know, like super hard. Um, and so, so I think that there's a lot of those. And I think that we have not given trades enough, uh, you know, and, and to, to the exact what you were talking about, but the, the ability to know whether it's going wrong or going, you know, being able to make that that decision is still something that takes a lot of life experience, in my opinion. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I think it depends really on the strata of the technical worker, um, of the worker you're talking about. If you're a, a technical writer, for example, uh, you may have a lot of technical knowledge, but you may not be very good at grammar and uh, and writing. And in that case, you use it as a tool to improve your, your writing and grammar, and then you correct all the mistakes that it's going to make by hallucinating because you have good technical knowledge. So you're still going to have a job. Uh, I think the jobs that may get eliminated are the entry-level jobs where accuracy doesn't matter. You're not writing historical stuff or you're writing creative uh, novel stuff, you know, that doesn't matter if, uh, you know, your, your main protagonist is a tire as I was speaking earlier, uh, that kills people or uh, a human, you know, because anything's possible in the magic world of imagination. As someone who has spent, you know, most of a vast majority of my life reading everything from encyclopedias to the internet to, you know, uh, original information networks and so on and so forth, I will argue that ChatGPT is not that much dumber than everything else that's out there. It is, you know, we we hold it that way, but even when we go back and I mean, we took they took one of our planets away. You know, we we were that was in our our textbooks for a long time. <laughs> so nothing is safe. Uh, no information is safe. Uh, so that that's all I would say. Next question. Tim Holm from San Lorenzo, California. Has anyone been to Burning Man? And if so, how did you protect your equipment in that extreme environment? Good, Courtney. You bring all your old equipment that you don't care about anymore, and at the end of Burning Man, you throw it all away because the dust is so pervasive, it gets into every single nook and cranny. I've not been to Burning Man, but I've been in several different locations around the world that have that same level of fine dust that is a you know, clay-type uh, fine particle dust that blows and gets in everything. They didn't have that problem this year. They had a little problem with mud, but uh, it did keep down on the blowing dust. But the problem is trying to get that stuff out of your equipment. If you have any kind of mechanical moving parts like lenses or things, it's going to get in there. It gets inside switches and stuff. It's it's devious. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, when we did John's rocket launch, Noah, afterwards, Noah discovered a um, a product at Home Depot called um i think they're called gorilla wipes or something i like to i like to describe them as like tactical baby wipes they're these massive uh it's like a baby wipe but it's it's great for cleaning up gear uh courtney's right the dust gets everywhere and it is going to get inside things so don't take don't take the most valuable stuff but the dust is ridiculous i mean i still have dust two years later in my truck from John's launch. Crazy. Yeah, I was going to support exactly that from the Gene Lake bed experience. That dust was pervasive everywhere. I'm still opening an occasional old battery compartment or something like that and finding some of it around. But you know something? You survive. It's okay. It doesn't, it's not sightly, but most of it uh, in the Southwest in places, it can carry some nasty little bugs like coccidiodum, mycosis, valley fever. But mostly it's pretty benign and you just have to 
you know, that's part of shooting, part of going out. Yeah, I mean, I've, I haven't gone to Burning Man, but I've worked in a lot of pretty challenging areas. And the big thing that we really pay a lot of attention to is there's certain operations that we really are careful with is when we open a camera, for instance, like switching lenses, we do not do that outside. Like we don't, you know, like at all, like no matter how clear it looks, uh, no matter what it looks like, um, you know, we do that oftentimes in a bag, you know, we put our, you know, in a, in, you know, we'll put, put them both in a bag and you get, you have to kind of by memory understand where they're going. Um, but we, we've we de- definitely done them in, in that sense. And oftentimes we swap those out, but that's something we, we, getting it into the, into the camera and onto the sensor really slows you down, um, you know, and so, you know, because the cleaning the sensor is just time consuming and you'll get, now you got a couple dots and you'll see, you'll see it in documentaries. You'll see a little dot and you know what happened. I mean, they were swapping it out. In general, and this isn't just when I'm in the desert, um, I usually have five seconds as the target for how long it's going to take me to move a lens on. I do not have lenses sitting without a cap on them for any period of time, nor do I do it with the camera. I loosen the cap on the lens. I loosen the cap on the camera. And then I pop them off and they sit in and it all takes less than five seconds. <laughs> you know, like, and I, and it's all like, I, I sat down in a place where I can change my lenses. I, I, a lot of people are a lot lazier than I am and they have, they end up cleaning their sensors a lot more than I do. Um, in general, though, you really have to have great cleaning procedures. We keep a lot in plastic and trash trash bags while we're shooting when we can. Uh, or they, you know, there are some stuff that's sealed for that we use for rain that we oftentimes will use for dust. And then, as was said before, I mean, I know someone who does safaris. Um, they shoot safaris all the time in Southern Africa, and they buy a set of cameras and they use them all season, and then they have them professionally cleaned, and then they put them on eBay. <laughs> Like and they just get a new set of cameras every year. Um, they're like, it's not, it's 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 not bad after the first year, but it's you might as well just get new ones and and they sell them for almost nothing on eBay and they're still in good condition. They've been professionally cleaned, but they're not the same as they were before. Uh, next question from Jonas Dottel from Stuttgart, Germany. Can you hot swap batteries that are connected over DTAP? Uh, go ahead, Bill. From my experience, the answer is sometimes, but not always. You really have to test this. DTAP is just a power outlet. It can be coming from uh, the traditional old ones, NP batteries. Often on the bottom of those, they had DTAPs. You could run something else like a light or something. Uh, if the battery was going low and you got a warning, you could pop out the DTAP and switch it with something else. But the NP battery, which was present, would still give the camera enough juice to keep going. But that is not always the case. And sometimes if the DTAP is the only source of power and you pull it, unless the parameter RAM has a little battery or something keeping it, you could shut everything down. So I I think this is a test, test, test one for me. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, I agree with Bill. Uh, A lot of DTAP uh, power strips also have some type of regulator in it. It might be good for microseconds, but it depends on the equipment. So can't depend on it. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, the device that you're powering has to have uh, has to accommodate multiple sources of power in. In other words, it has to have an external power uh, jack on it uh, as well as its battery jack. And if one fails, it automatically switches over to the other. So if it has that built into the device itself, or if you have a uh, a, a mount for V mount that has uh, a separate source where you could plug external power in, that would either charge the battery or switch automatically to the shore power coming into it uh, over the a coaxial jack, it, when you take the battery out, it'll automatically manage that and switch. And it doesn't matter whether it's DTAP or not. It senses the voltage, not necessarily the presence of the battery. Uh, and it will switch. But you do have to have uh, multiple sources of voltage hooked up in order to hot swap. Next question. 
Tim Holm from San Lorenzo. What's the newest and or most interesting new gear you've purchased for yourself? Note, exclude business purchases. Silence. Like, what? Like, not business purposes? <laughs> like, what are we supposed to do with this? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think of, like, non-business purposes. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, it's, uh, I, although I, yeah, I, I do use it for business. It's whether you deduct it or not. That's what the IRS is looking oh. for, <laughs> whether you deduct it as a business purchase or not. But I just got a new uh, a new 3D printer, so I got a Creality uh, Ender 3 V3, and I'm very happy with it. It's a lot, it's four times faster than the old one. It's $200, and it's much leaner and meaner than the previous versions. It has automatic bed leveling. I'm very satisfied with it. I've been printing out a bunch of stuff over the last few days, and it's not as good as it's not as fast as my K1, which is the high speed XY, kind of like the cheaty printer that Alex has. Uh, it's not as fast as that one, but it's about half as fast. It's half fast, uh, <laughs> but it it does work quite well, and I, I'd there. recommend it for a entry level 3D printer anytime. They're available now, shipping now. Yeah, I don't I don't really buy a lot of tech that isn't connected to work. I know it sounds funny, but I'm not really a that techie outside of what I do for work. Um so I I think that my uh I haven't really um yeah, I'm trying to think of, uh, the most exciting thing I got was an industrial level, you know, it gets pretty hot in uh here and even the air conditioning has a hard time keeping up. So getting the house cold at night, you know, it goes down to 50s at night. And so I got a big exhaust fan, which I was pretty excited about. It sounds like a jet engine, but it basically, you know, clears most of the house overnight. Um, uh, so it's for, fortunately far enough away from us that everyone can still sleep, but it, but it exhausts a lot of air. So that's, that's the only thing I can think of. Go ahead, uh, Jason. This is kind of business related, but I didn't buy it for business purposes, at least not initially. I got an X-Tool laser engraver with, um, I, I want to say, a far infrared or a 1065, I think, nanometer laser that can etch in, in solid titanium. And um, what I've ended up using it a lot for is to etch on the on the like the outside of cables not the rubber part but the actual tip of the metal part and the laser is 3 microns i mean you really you can put anything you want in the smallest tip that you could possibly think of and um it's really cool i did get something for my daughter i got the tc electronic polytune 3 it's a little compact tuner for your bass it turns out basses are hard to to tune because you can't hear them very well and if, and if you're in a public place or at a concert it's hard to get them there so i got her this little thing it's about 100 bucks and it's uh i saw it being used the toe the wet sprockets show that i was that i was at they were tuning all the guitars with it and you just plug it in like it's a amp and then you, you can actually go through it and it it'll tell you exactly what your your frequency is so that there's a cool little tip that was not necessarily for me it was actually for my daughter but she loves it next question from Todd Reynolds in North Adams, Massachusetts, I think it's time to liberate myself from Dropbox. Reached to two terabytes, another $80 for one terabyte more. Best practices and options. Love the ease of use, but... Go ahead, Jason. Yeah, I think it's time for you to do the same. Get an ass, use it to download the totality of your Dropbox. And um, if you need cloud storage realize that you know using it sparingly is the right way to go so you can actually take everything down from the nas and then have a folder that syncs with google drive for example use the whatever you get by default from google drive and just in piecemeal you can just 
could chunk it up to the cloud and you don't have to keep everything all the time. I think that's your best bet. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I, I agree. Google Cloud, uh, Google Google Drive is what I use. I just buy their first level of uh, of paid for. You get a certain amount free. The first level of paid for is enough for me. And I just store stuff up there that I need uh, access to or I need to give access to other people so I can give them to a, a link to a file that I don't have to worry about them getting into my NAS or into my network anywhere. Uh, and it's secure and safe and in the cloud. And I also put up there uh, some secured folders for backup of stuff. But I use Carbonite for off-prem backup because uh, it's automatic. It's set up. It's in the cloud. It's a subscription and works from multiple machines. Yeah, another one like like Carbonite would be Backblaze. Um, so you can get a Backblaze um, set up and it's, you know, it'll back up your drive. So you still have it all on, on-prem, but you have a backup in the cloud. And so Carbonite is one one solution. Backblaze, I know a lot of friends that, that use that as well. And they're really happy with it. They're, I think they're very similar solutions uh, for that. Next question. John Snyder from Reno, Nevada. What's the simplest way to get footage from home studio Blackmagic Hammer into Resolve? Memory card, HD, record elsewhere in the chain? Go, Jason. There are a lot of ways to do this. Um, last time... Last time OWC was on, um, I demonstrated that you could actually record RAW directly onto a thumb drive from OWC, and it actually did work. Uh, it required a firmware update, but it but it did work. So absolutely anything that you can do to get it quickly off and then back on, I think SneakerNet is the way to go. Good, Bill. That's a variation on SneakerNet, but I use Samsung T5s. Whoops, you can't even see that because everything's black. Uh, this is a Samsung T, T5 drive. Uh, it's a USB-C slash Thunderbolt connection. It's very fast. And literally, this mounts on top of the camera. You shoot everything to this, and then you dismount this drive and plug it into the side of your computer, and it's just there. All the footage is there instantly. It's the fastest thing I've found so far. Next question. Tim Holm from San Lorenzo, a QR code generator for an iPhone for purchase that has no ad hooks. QR factory is for Mac only. You know, I don't know. <laughs> I don't have any. I use QR factory for everything that I'm doing on the Mac. Um, I don't know of a web version of that. I think you can, there's, you can, I think on the, even on the Mac, you can write scripts, but I don't know anything on the iPhone. Um, yeah, go ahead, Courtney. I don't know because I don't have an iPhone, but uh, you might try the Chrome browser because the Chrome browser has a built-in plugin that you just right-click and you do export, and then it'll say QR code, and it'll take whatever whatever URL is on in the Chrome browser at that moment in time and create a, a, a custom a QR code for it that it'll save out as a um, as an image file. Go, Jason. Shortcuts on um, on iOS will do this natively. Uh, just Google it. And the main thing that you get from having an app like QR code or something is a lot more ability. You can generate a QR code very easily in a lot of places. Uh, what I get to do is be able to add logos and change the how it's structured and, you know, that type of thing. Next question. Craig Kadoki from Toronto, Canada. The McLaren F1 car has a digital signage on it, a display on each side of the cockpit that can be seen from the roll hoop camera. Thoughts? Sounds cool. <laughs> it seems like you're adding weight, but uh, but if, if they pay for it, sure. Yeah, go, Courtney. Yeah, it allows them to change sponsorship between races or even during the race so they can multiply their ad income uh, with the logos right. that change automatically. It's expensive business to be in. Uh, next question. 
Next question coming in from Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana. So I'm going to be on the road a lot, and I'm thinking, rethinking uh, workflows and travel prep. My shaving kit is old leather and needs an update. Any suggestions? Go ahead, Bill. This is something you get so used to that I, I think the last time I changed mine was like 10 years ago. But when I did so, I got a different form factor. It's kind of long, and what happens, it's got a big U-shaped zipper on it so that top flap comes up and then it has a hook at the top that you can hook over uh, a peg or the door or the shower rod or whatever it is you want to hook it to and it's really nice because when it opens up like that it has not only some clear pouches for things like soaps and things that might get out but it has a mirror on it so I found myself in a couple of circumstances where I was traveling and I didn't have time to do anything more than stop by a restroom and try to refresh. So to have a little open up thing like that, I found that very useful and I like it. But that's 10 years ago. I'm sure they have even more sophisticated new dop kits now. But look for something like that. I found it very useful. Jason, real quick. I would go real simple here. Uh, Patagonia black uh, hole cube bag with, um, with a big carabiner and you're done. Next question. What would you use uh, on a, a set of inner ear monitors to provide some sanitary transfer between users? Go Bill. Most of the uh, Motorola walkie-talkie-like things that you've seen have those little clear tubes. They're incredibly cheap. So if you can adapt whatever you need to monitor to those, you can get 10 of those. And I don't think my uh, hookup, yeah. Oh, there we go. Uh, these little clear tubes are incredibly inexpensive. For 10 bucks, you get, I think, 10 of them, so they're a buck a piece. So uh, if I get in a circumstance where I have to put monitors on a lot of people, I'd use something like that just so you can swap out that last three inches and nothing else. So a new one for every person. Good, Courtney. Yeah, I agree with Bill. The security-type monitors, they have the little clear piece. You can throw these. Uh, these are removable. You just twist and remove them, and you can drop these in alcohol bath or boiling water even since there's no active parts in them. Or you can just throw them away uh, if you want to recycle because they're cheap enough. Next question. Next question from Douglas Carmichael. An arena in Boston has a 200-amp three-phase power hookup for uplink trucks for national broadcast, but only 60-amp, 208-phase, single-phase for local broadcast. With the efficiency of modern equipment, wouldn't you be able to do larger shows on smaller setups? Go, Jason. Yes, and good luck getting the broadcast industry to, um, to give away, give back power. Yeah, those trucks just take a certain amount of power. Like they're driving a truck up, it's a double expando. They need to be able to co- cover it, and if they don't, and if they don't do that, they're not going to bring the truck, and then you're not going to have a, as good of a show. Those trucks, the number of monitors and everything else that are required to make that thing run is really, really power intensive. So, uh, you know, I think that that that's a minimum. I, mean, I think that. Uh, you know, the smaller ones can definitely do that for little local trucks with little local. But to do all the things that a national truck does at an arena, it needs that much power. Um, next question. Bobby Rafferty in Central Florida. What do you think of this AR geospatial experience? Um uh, I do not know. Something got swapped here, so I didn't have quite enough time. I thought I had I thought I had one question the next, and I'm gonna go to it because I don't I don't I think it's hard uh uh I did, did anyone was anyone able to look at that? I just it's just a uh, it was um it's hard for me to grok quickly. Uh let's see here. Um yeah. Yeah, it's just not loading well. That's the problem. Uh next question. 
And the next question, uh, this is actually a next hour question, but I'll read it anyhow in case you want it. Chris Fenwick uh, from Half Moon Bay, how to take a PowerPoint or PDF file with a graph in it and pull it apart and get layers broken out to animate separately? I misread that one. (laughs) So I'm the one that moved that one forward because I thought that was a relatively good question, and it's a good question for the second hour, and I I threw that forward. It's my fault. Uh, Next question. Craig Kadoki from Toronto, Canada. Has anyone looked into the new Sony MDR MV1 headphones designed for mixing immersive sound? You know, a lot of people talk about a design for mixing immersive sound. It's still generally a stereo experience. I mean, I don't know if they're, they're doing anything sp- specific. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, it goes from four cycles to 80,000 cycles in their spec page. I have no idea what 80,000 is going to do for you because nobody's capable of hearing those frequencies. Anything over 15 is pretty uh, pretty exciting. Good, Bill. Yeah, a lot of people can't hear that stuff. Uh, I will say that once upon a time when I was in my 20s, I don't know how I got them, but I got a set of costs quadraphonic headphones had four drivers two in each cup and it was an interesting experience but i found i used them for about a month and a half and then i stopped using them because first of all there wasn't a lot of source stuff now in the modern era we have airpods that do some sort of black magic to give you spatial audio out of those two little units and that to me is more interesting so um i haven't looked into the new sony's um but Obviously, there's something going on in the technology to allow a more immersive audio experience with some localization just out of two points. There's some marketing that's going on. I think that's no, also what's going on. <laughs> I, don't think, I think there's a lot. Of, I don't know if there's a lot of technology going on, but there's a lot of so, something being slung. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. It's immersive. Yeah, since you can only hear up to about fourteen to 17,000, it's, it's kind of the, the thing you might it might take into account is the fact that uh, uh, to do 360 audio over headsets you know it has to mix things in slightly out of phase into uh, the other channel and and that phase relationship between the two things may generate the uh, your brain to think that it's in a different position it adjusts the phase and the frequency response to make it sound like it's coming from behind you or above you etc and maybe that works better with broad frequency response uh, transducers i'm not sure Coming up this week, we've got uh, David Schumann tomorrow. He's going. He's from Mixing Station. Mixing Station is a third-party application that controls over 30 different audio mixing consoles. So I think that's going to be a really interesting show tomorrow uh, for our second hour. On Thursday, HDR. So our, our expert crew is coming back in to talk about HDR um, and the future of, of lookup tables and conversion. Uh, we've had some incredible HDR conversations related to this. And so we're really excited to have that team um, back uh, on uh, Thursday. Uh, Friday, we're doing another brainstorming. As I said, every quarter we start to wrap up and start to figure those things out. So what do you want to see in the area of logistics and IT and those types of things that we, how do we glue all of this together? Um, That is happening, of course, on um, on Friday. And then Saturday, of course, uh, you're going to start to see us do a lot more R&D on Saturday. So, um, so Saturday could be a lot of fun. I think that we're going to slowly, I don't think it'll be necessarily this Saturday, but um, soon you're going to start to see us probably experiment with HDR directly in the show. Um, and so there's a bunch of pieces that are that are going to start happening there. So stay tuned for that. So Saturday's a two-hour Q&A, or up, 
up to two hours, depending on how many questions you ask. And then a Sunday, of course, is always our introspection day. So if you have things you want to talk a little about that are a little bit more philosophical, things about office hours, things about the process, concerns, uh, all of those things, we, we don't broadcast that. So you don't see it if you don't, if, if you are just watching the YouTube channel, uh, those are all inside of Zoom natively. Um, but, um, but anyway, so that's when we talk about that. Um, and a quick reminder that we have NAB signups that are still going out in the email um, and in Discord, and we'll po- post it again soon uh, because uh, we, we think it's going to be a pretty big show. And we're going to be covering IBC, and IBC is coming up in only a week and a half. And we actually have a little promo to show you uh, about what you can expect right here. European members of the Office Hours community are heading to the International Broadcast Convention in the Rye Center in Amsterdam to bring you the latest broadcast trends and technologies to Office Hours Live from the exhibition floor. Join us on the 16th of September for the latest trends in broadcasting technologies. And this year we are especially focusing on finding solutions for your production problems. Let us know what you would like to see, what problems you need to be solved, over on officehours.global slash IBC. It was so close. Anyway, so we, we had all the timing working. <laughs> I was so excited. I, I so a little little background there. This, welcome to the second hour, by the way. Um, the, the, so we that's the first time we've ever done that. So we were we, we were like, hey, let's play it out. And I was like, I got to finish by it was. I watched it ahead of time. I thought it was great. I was excited to have it here. And um, Mickey had shown it to me uh, earlier this morning. And uh, so I was like, okay, I'll finish at fifty nine twenty, and then it'll be thirty five seconds, and then we'll go to black for a little extended longer with it thing, and then we'll come back up again. The system's not built for this yet. So I'm, I'm sure that uh, that will get a lot better. I love the idea of doing little little promos, though, af, you know, uh, at the end of the hour. I think that was I, I admit hadn't this is how office hours progresses is that is that someone does something like, hey, can we do this thing? And then we do it. And then, and then before you it know, it will be like, a job for 12 people. <laughs> So, so Alex, if if I may, so if you want if to be the part of the promo crew, let us know. We're you know we've got a new so team coming. Another way of doing this is if we dead roll something that has a soft start. Okay, so we dead roll it like five minutes before, and it has you know a billboard and a thing and a and a and then it finishes with the tight button so so it will always end at the hour and we can dead roll it and if you end a little early no big deal we'll just go to it it has a little you know a uh, uh, running thing of things that are coming up and then it goes into the promo reel and then boom done just a thought yeah it was good it was good though i think that i think that we'll we'll keep playing with that that's probably we have to get to a point where for a variety of reasons on our end, uh, eventually we have to stop exactly at 57, you know, um, either 57 or 58 minutes, but one or the other, we're trying to work that out right now. Um, and so, and then, and then put it in, we're bu- building up for being able to make this available to broadcasters, both radio and TV. And the, um, we have to start hitting numbers very, t- very, t- very precisely to do that and to make it work for them. So it doesn't feel like it's off. Um, so we're, we're working on all of those. You'll see us 
constantly tightening these little screws. We're not doing it just to do it. Uh, we are doing it to, um, because we're trying to get ready for something that is still quite a few months away. <laughs> like, I don't want to have anyone have an expect, like turn on their TV, like, where is it? Um, but, uh, but we're, we're working on it. So anyway, so that's, uh, that's there. So we're now in the second hour and uh, I used up one of the second hour suggestions. I think they, they, they broke it out. Um, but, uh, uh, I think that, um, if you have, so really the Tuesdays are really about, you know, graphics. So whether it's, and it's just a really important piece. I know that a lot of folks, it's funny when we did pixel core, uh, Tuesday, I mean, all we did was graphics and I couldn't get anyone to talk about audio or video or business or anything else. All they want to talk about is 3d graphics and 2d graphics. And here, uh, you know, the Tuesdays are often at times a little bit softer. We're still building them up like we did with the other ones. And so, um, but what we, what we really want to look at is covering everything from AR, VR, AI, you know, motion graphics, still graphics, topography we've covered, um, 3D graphics, all of those things are, are things, interfaces. Those are all things that we're going to be, you know, covering in this second hour. And what we're looking for from everyone watching, and we'll do this as long as um, there are questions or suggestions coming in, um, are what people, what do people actually want to see? So, um, you know, uh, as far as things that we could bro possibly bring in and we have we're bringing in people as well. So we had uh, Stu Mashwitz come in last week, which I thought was pretty great um, talking about some of the stuff that he's worked on. And so I think that there's a real opportunity there. Um, let's go ahead. So if you've got suggestions for us, um, then go ahead and throw those into um, and I don't know if the panelists have specific things that they want to talk about. But if you've got suggestions, um, you can go ahead and use the question system um, to uh, to ask those questions. Um, and then we'll uh, we'll move forward there. So let's um, let's go ahead uh, to uh, go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, just a comment. Um, I love some of the stuff we're doing. Not all of it is something that I would use. But I'm fascinated by it, like the plate pros and some of the uh, surround stuff that you were uh, we were discussing last week. But I think we also need to uh, incorporate practical examples and uses of graphics that we all would use on a regular basis, whether it's lower thirds or one of uh, Chris's upcoming questions that seem to can't quite make it in. Um, I think it's a good a good usage of uh, of an actual practical example and what tools you use to be able to make it happen. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I think we've done some practical ones. We so some of the ones we've done have been observing things like what is a what makes a good lower third or how do the low, lower thirds work. I mean, I do think that we could do. We have some coming up that we're thinking about um, regarding like super sources and really looking at how to build them and talk, talk about it less, less about like just looking at them all. We may look at, we've already done that, but really like how to build them and, and what makes them special and the geometries and so on and so forth. Go ahead, Jason. Uh, we've done this, but it's been a while. I think maybe live transition effects and, and kind of their practical use when, you know, when to use a stinger, when to use a wipe, when never to use a wipe, um, when everything should just be crossfade and when to just go with a cut bus. Yeah, absolutely. Let's let's go to the first suggestion. Go ahead. And first suggestion coming in from Chris Fenwick in Half Moon Bay, California. How to take a PowerPoint or PDF file with a graph in it and pull it apart and get layers broken out to animate separately. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, this goes to my my philosophy that you know there's there's going to be one star you know uh, nine Star Wars movies made in the last fifty years, but there's thousands and thousands and thousands of boring or horrible corporate videos and and those kind of practices those kind of uh 
um, techniques. You, you got to know how to do it. And it's not exciting. It's not sexy at all. But it is, um, you know, it's like a, it's like a lower third. You got to know how to do it. And I've done a lot of it. I'm sure Mitch has as well. You know, you get like the, here's, here's something you've had happen, Mitch. I guarantee they sent you a PDF of the annual report. And uh, on page 17 is a chart that shows our growth rate compared to our competitors. And we need to make that lovely and, and animate it into the video. Mitch knows how to do that. I know how to do that. It's, it's a thing and it's, and it's worth sharing because if you've done, you know, a few hundred of them, uh, or thousands, uh, you learn, you learn some, some tricks. I used to draw them from scratch till I figured out file formats a little better. Yeah. The, um, the funny thing there is that I, I often now will use power, not PowerPoint, but use keynote to animate some of those things because the keynote stuff works so well and so easy and fast that that might be something to talk to as well. Like big if I problem want, with, big problem with that though, is you're not going to get it in keynote. You're going to get it in PowerPoint and not everything will translate right. So yes, that, that would be cool. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't always work. Well, and I when it doesn't do it. work, how do you how do you get around it? Right. No, no. I, I uh, um, for I use Keynote for, as my own generation for these kind of things. Um, and Absolutely. So, so I throw yeah, those that's, in. That's that's the easy part. But now right. you've been given a PDF of the, their annual report that was made by some agency back east, right. maybe Mitch, uh, um, and that's what it has to be. Not like this. Right. Not a little bit like this. Uh, one of my clients, uh, uh, Schwab, they do, they have this one woman that makes these charts of, you know, following trends. And I would love to interview her for like maybe a week. Like literally it would take right. a week to learn everything that she knows about um, Excel and charting. And because I've gotten the raw data from her and I just look at it and I'm like, this is impossible. This is this is an impossible task given the little bit of knowledge that I have in my in my yeah. noggin here. But they make these charts all the time, and they're not they're not sexy. They're not three D and shadowed and specular highlights and blah, blah you know gradient right. fills. Nope, they're really ugly, but they're precise. And times right. when I've tried to say, well, you know, I'm just going to mimic it, I get called out. Like that, like, wait, that data's wrong. That doesn't look right. It's like, right. It's, yeah, but it's close, right? It's, I mean, it's like 99% there, right? Yeah, yeah no, we can't show that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's, anyway, it's an interesting, it's actually, I take that back. It's not an interesting topic. It's a necessary topic. No, no, it, it's, it's, I, I still love the quote that I saw on a t-shirt at NAB, which is that um, engineers, and it says, we're not boring. We're just excited about boring things. And, and so the thing, <laughs> And so, and so the, and it's true. I, you know, like I'm, I'm, I get excited about very, very weird things, you know, like the, 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 you know, that, that are very, that for most people would find very boring. Um, you know, I, I went from like trying to fix my pool to being obsessed with it and obsessed with the chemistry and accept, you know, and it's like, it's, it's just the pool. Other people pay to do that. And I probably should too. But the fact that I can, I can manage that chemistry and understand it and understand the whole thing is interesting to me. Um, and I think that these are the same things. Uh, the problem is when you do hire somebody to take care of it, you're going to be his worst customer. Oh, I am. Cause you're going to be correcting him all the time. Oh yeah. Oh, absolutely. Uh, that's not the pH I'm reading. From my remote sensor in my office well, here. No, no, it's all, it's, it's more like, hey, uh, I would like to make all of these pipes clear so I can see where the water's going. Uh, anyway, go ahead, Don Mitchell. 
Yeah, I think it's an important question that Chris asked because techniques are just as important as the actual products you use to get there. Like, again, I'm not going to go into detail, but if I had a PDF file, I'd have to bring it into Illustrator, separate it out, save it as an Illustrator file, and then bring it into After Effects. And then you have control of all the layers to do exactly the things that Chris was talking about. But the technique to do that um, is significant and important. For example, you can't bring a PDF file directly into After Effects. It's not going to show layers, strangely enough, even though it's an Adobe product. So technique, I think, is uh, important utilization well, think, of I products. I think it's also important to talk about in this relationship is we can talk about file formats, as Chris was kind of alluding to, of what to ask for. You know, because a lot of times people have that they... It's hidden somewhere. Like, I've had people, to Chris's point, send me something um, that is a very ugly PowerPoint graph. And I said, hey, can you just send me the Excel file that generated this? And they're like, oh, sure. And they send me that, and then I just put it into Keynote. <laughs> it looks way nicer real quickly. I go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, there's a number of ways to do this. Uh, you know, what I would do if I got a PowerPoint, and a lot of times it'll be locked so that you can't edit it uh, or anything. You can only display it. And if that's the case, um, you can't extract anything from it. You can't even copy out of it because there's locks on some PowerPoint, PDF files especially, that they can set that you can't even uh, copy and paste from them. But you can do is put them up on display on your Mac or your PC and then hit screen grab. Make sure your PC or your Mac is set to the highest resolution. You have it hooked up to the highest resolution monitor. So it'll it'll render those images at the highest resolution. Then you just screen grab that full screen image. Well, and I think, I think when, with, we, when we... Right. Yeah, and to, not to try to answer the question right now, but but I think that those are great examples of of things we want to cover for this uh, second hour. Yeah. I oh, think I that, see. That's a second hour suggestion. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, I no, deviated from the, the plan no, it's all, there. It's all sorry. good. It's all good. If we answer all of these, then we have, well, we've used up our second hours. And so, but, but that would be, that's a, Courtney has a great technique that we would definitely, I think that a round table technique of how we all do it would probably be better than trying to explain the way to do it because I think we all have different life experiences. It also to, may be better as a, as a lab. Like I would, I would love to watch over Mitch's shoulder for a half hour as he takes, you know, yeah, does, I mean, I, does I, this. I don't think it's an either or. I think that what we, what we want to do eventually is get to a point where we, there is a light covering in a second hour that is followed that later that week. We give people enough time to watch it on YouTube and everything else. And then, oh, next week we're doing a lab where we're all going to kind of work on it over, you know, a couple hours. That's the, I mean, that's the one, two punch that I'm trying to get to is that, you know, the second hours have a, a lab that's connected to some of them a week later. Um, and, and we kind of promote into the show like, hey, this is happening the week, the week after this. Um, next question. Next one in from Doug, Douglas Carmichael. Smoke and fogging effects, how to deploy them safely. I don't know if that's really a graphics um, suggestion. So let's keep our, our discussion to if it's a graphics uh, thing, because I think we can safely deploy smoke. And, no and smoke in my it. edit suite. Yeah, so, but uh, but let's not get into smoke here. <laughs> like, that's more of a Friday's discussion. Uh, but but if it's for computer graphics, we'll keep or discussing. Or Thursday in terms of being able to shoot yeah. lighting and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah uh, Thursday, particle, particle effects. Yeah, uh, Courtney? Yeah, I was going to say smoke really doesn't have anything to do with uh, graphics necessarily, just your image quality. But you know, uh, if we on the business on the business day we could do safety on the set, that would be another good topic. Good, uh, uh, or I would say that's probably a fr safety on the set is probably a Friday discussion. But that's a good one. Yeah, go, Bill. 
No, I was just going to support that. I mean, it, you know, we all know the techniques, but how to get it in the right place and the safety aspect, I think, is the most critical because you are throwing stuff in the air. That's probably a Friday discussion. Uh, next question. Dave Troutman from Edmonton, Canada. Image compression artifacts for various graphics formats. Yeah, I think that understanding how image compression uh, works um I think is and and when you're going to see it and where where it's going to show up, um, I think is a is a very solid uh, solution. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, I would say workflow, like how to get something uh, from your mezzanine edit uh, through to YouTube and compressed properly. Yeah, and you see this in images as well. So I mean, it's it's not just the video, but it's like someone sends you something with a bunch of compression, and you need to know, you know, like it's it's really easy to turn that up quickly, especially if you don't know what you're looking at. Um, next question. Adrian Watkins from Wellington, New Zealand. How about a session on mid-journey prompts and results? Uh, go ahead, Chris. I think that would be great. Also, uh, uh, Photoshop generative prompts. You know, yeah. I, I struggle with, uh, I take a set and I want to extend the set. You know, like take this. And I was like, well, what if I was sitting in a much bigger space? You know, what would it look like, you know, going out yeah. another 30 degrees is it expand background is it extend background is it generate background i i don't know what word and and i'm lazy enough that i haven't actually experimented with them so i don't know which one works best good courtney yeah i was recently looking for a a, a video explainer on how mid-journey works and i couldn't find you know I, I found lots and lots of them on how to craft the correct prompt to give you what you want but not technically under the hood what technology Midjourney uses to create that imagery and how it gets all these things right. I'd love to see a whole hour on the under the under the hood of how Midjourney works. Maybe John could host that. Yeah, I think that one of the things that we in general we need to keep coming back to Midjourney as as John had talked about, it's really, really important that we stay up to date on this and keep track of, you know, constantly tracking these different software because they are going to affect our business. And if we ignore them, they're just going to affect it negatively. <laughs> if we, and if we pay attention to it, I think there's a lot it can add. Um, next question. Craig McFarlane from Boston, Massachusetts asked, probably for a basic show, but what are the rules of thumb for graphics and lower thirds for readability, duration when live, colorblindness check, and so on? Yeah, I think that I think that it's we, we've talked about what makes, you know, we've looked at a lot of lower thirds, but I think that actual like lower third construction step by step. You now, these are the different layers of lower thirds, like there's a still, you can swipe in, you can wipe in, you can animate them, you know, coming in, uh, are they transparent? Are they regular? What what are you trying to do there? I think it would make a big difference. Go ahead, Bill. I think it'd be interesting to find like a qualified art director and bring them on as a guest and, and talk to them about what it is that they look for in all of those areas. Because you're bringing up a lot of areas that people who are doing graphics in the beginning don't think about, you know, that how is it reacting to the rest of the screen and all of the aspects of bringing something in. And art directors think about that a lot. Sometimes the switcher operator doesn't have as much depth on that. Good, Chris. I think it would be interesting to find a quality, uh, qualified art director as well bill <laughs> next, next question. They're, they're hard to find uh next question john snyder from reno nevada a second hour dedicated to data visualization bringing in someone like the link below go ahead courtney 
Yeah, that would be interesting, especially on this these three D data visualizers that uh, you know put stuff out in a kind of a three D point cloud that you can navigate between the different points by moving your mouse. You know uh, how those are applic- applied and and when they're useful, or are they just you know uh, eye candy. You know, a half an hour on that would be a, a good point. Go, John. Some of the new tools for AI are, are going to do some amazing stuff with graphs coming from data. So that tie that into that same episode. Next suggestion. Next suggestion coming in from John Preto in Las Vegas. Um, I'd love to see Mr. Wright back on to cover color hist- uh, theory. Sorry, color wheel, wavelengths, color spaces, etc. I will reach out to him. I think he'd probably come back on. So that we've, we've, we've come a long way since last time. Steve Wright, uh, I think we've come a long way since last time he was on. So it'd be a lot of fun. Um, next question. Next one in from John Snyder in Reno. A second hour dedicated to best practices for graphics on vertical video mobile tools. Yeah, I think that there's probably a, a, a pretty solid discussion about where to put graphics and also how to build hybrids. So, you know, a lot of times we work on things where we have to put it out in 16 by 9 and and 9 by 16, sometimes at the same time. Um, and so I think figuring out how to or talking about how to do that would be useful. Go ahead, Bill. Yeah, I think a corollary to that is a discussion of safe zones and what is, you know, because now you've got horizontal and you've got vertical people working at it. And what is safe? Do you put yeah. everything in the middle? Do you put it in the corners? What's the current thinking about the most watched display of graphics and how that affects design? How to avoid screen debris is what we call yes. it. Yes. So, so you know, like, and, and thanks, thanks to Greg Gibson, if you're listening, Greg. Greg is the one that I think, for me, coins the idea of screen debris. Uh, and, uh, and so anyway, so it's, um, yeah, I think that, that would be great. Next question. Adrian Watkins from Wellington, New Zealand, asked folks like Stu Mashevitz from Big Movies, VFX Houses. Yeah, we're working on it. Stu was uh, kind enough to jump in there, and uh, we've got a couple other folks that we're following up with. Uh, next question. John Fisher from Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Graphics, second hour recommendation. It'd be great to have my prolific illustrator and logo designer pal, Von Gishashka, sorry, on to talk about his PPLUV graphics and creative teaching projects. I will have to take a closer look at it. I have copied that. I don't, I don't have a lot to respond to because I don't know it very well. But yeah, sounds good. Um, next question. Roscoe Jones, Madison, Indiana. VFX movie reviews where the panel does research on a current or historical film. FX Guide TV Light with a bigger panel for a wider audience. Yeah, I think that'd be fun. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, maybe we could have somebody on from the Corridor crew who does the same thing. They do visual effects artists look at and then they pick a topic. So something like that would be interesting, especially if you could get one of those guys from Corridor crew on. Yeah, Bill. I think a historical look back at some of the watershed moments, like I remember when I saw the uh, Slash Movie 7, those graphics, I had never seen anything like that before. And then afterwards, in the, in the following four years, I saw it all over the place. So you see those seminal moments where some designer hits on something that's really cool and suddenly it just sweeps through the industry. That'd be fun. Yeah, go ahead, Chris. The irony of the 7 title sequence is that it was all done with photographic and practical effects, the jitter and the shaking and stuff was like done by like taking like a drill and touching the lens of the camera so it would jitter. It caused people to try and mimic it digitally, but but that was all done photographically. 
I think that it's really would be interesting to, it'd be fun to show things that are done physically that, that create something. So for instance, there was a shot where the little, a little droid podcast or uh, pod racer drawer uh, droid runs across in front of an engine, gets sucked into the engine and the engine goes boom, 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 and then spits out, spits them out on the other end. The funny thing is, is that what that was, was a, a model about, about this big. And um, they had a drill that was pushing up against the bottom of it and they hit 240 frames a second and went and it just, it just shakes a little bit. And then when you slow it all down, it's like this big, like, you know, and, and does all with the sound effects, it totally works. And I think, I think it would be fun to do kind of in camera, like show how that works. And then how do you add the digital stuff on top of that would be a lot of fun. So breakdowns of visual effects shots would be, would be a good time too. I'm, I've often wanted to build a whole show that was taking a shot out of um, a current movie and just, you know, or even a trailer and just doing it. Like, let's do that shot and show you what it took to do that shot, you know, um, to, to make that actually happen or what we would do. Next question. Jacoby Cicerusen from Poughkeepsie, New York. Single save graphics for simultaneous multi-format, multi-platform distribution and embedding. Yeah, <laughs> I, I agree. I mean, this is one of the things that you have to think about now all the time is you, you have to build something like I build everything at 4K um, just because I know that I, I, maybe I should start doing 8K, but we haven't really had any requests of 8K. So I build everything at 4K, but I make sure it's readable at uh, 360p, so 640 by 360. So I want to, when I scrunch it down, can I still read it? Because that's taking care of, can someone on a phone comfortably read it? But I make it 4K in resolution so that it looks nice and sharp. So that'd be the kind of thing. I mean, but, but looking at how those things, how we approach different things like that would be really good. Um, next question. John Preto, Las Vegas, USA, a second hour on the Apple development tools, et cetera, for the Apple Vision Pro would be good. Yeah, good, Courtney. That might be problematic because there's probably lots of non-disclosure agreements that go with that uh, API for pre-development of the, of the Apple product that has not been released yet. Uh, so you'd have to look at that to see whether we could even do something like that without getting in trouble with the lawyers. I think we can show the simulator. So I think that, you know, I think that all of that stuff is, is um, you know, and the one that really is, it's a reality creator um, th that's out there, Creator Pro. I think that we are looking at doing that one specifically because of, uh, um, I don't think that that's a, a private interface. Um, and I think we could show the simulator. Obviously, we couldn't show the, the, the headset yet. Uh, next question. Matt Parker from Sarasota, Florida, asking best practices and anatomy for video deliverables. For example, commercials, streaming platforms, television, how to allow for commercial insertion. Hey, go ahead, Mitchell. It wasn't so long ago I handed the client a, a VHS tape and a Betacam tape and I was done. Now it's a whole different story. So all these different uh, services require a different uh, uh, compatibility issue, and I'm sure Bill's going to talk about some of his broadcast clients and uh, what they require. Good, Bill. Well, it's a good topic. I'm just not sure it's the best for graphics day. I mean, uh, um, yes, I, I'm trying to think. I don't can't recall any circumstances where my graphics changed based on delivery, with the exception of this. The metadata um, would change. That's one of the great advantages of the system that I use in Final Cut is that you can pop out individual station things that have different opening graphics, but it's not really a graphics design kind of thing. I'm just not sure if that would be the right right for the graphics day. Maybe Probably I'm not for a graphics day, but I think that one that we want to think about when, we, when we're talking about video day is live delivery 
uh, requirements. You know, I think oh, that, yeah. what, you know, because oh, that's, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we have a lot of discussions about, you know, we're taking ISOs of this and ISOs from the cameras, but we want to dirty and we want to clean. And we now want, like, for instance, we might be doing a show at 60p, but we have to deliver 24. Um, you know, those are kind of things that we could potentially think about. Uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael, uh, LED wall planning, de- deployment and management. Go ahead, Courtney. The deployment would be more of a technical thing, but I think uh, creating graphics for LED walls would be a good topic on what resolutions to use, how to, you know, uh, deal with the weird aspect ratios or unusual shapes or curves, things like that. Uh, how to create the graphics that go on those walls would be a good uh, second hour. You go, Mitchell. Yeah, I can solve it fast. Don't put it over a fireplace. <laughs> Next question. Next question is from me, and the question is, an expert on high-profile programs like Flame. Yeah, I think we have some members that are uh, actual Flame users, and so I think that we might want to reach out to some of them. I'd love to show that and love to kind of break that down a little bit. Uh, go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, I've been talking to John Agapitas on the um, After Hours, and he would be very much up for it and very, very good at uh, doing demos. Love to have him come on. So let's, let's, um, let's figure that out because I think that'd be, that'd be really fun. Um, next one, and the final suggestion, unless someone comes up with more suggestions, <laughs> it'll be a shorter show today. Uh, but we've got a lot of great ideas. Uh, next question. Uh, Giannis uh, Bracunis from Akatuki, uh, Arizona. How to directly apply graphics to different surfaces like wood, steel, concrete, cloth, uh, glass, scenic drape, burning, engraving, etching, dye sublimation, etc., and applying different real services to graphics too. Thanks. I think it's great. Yeah, I mean, I, we haven't um, uh, we haven't discussed that, but you know, three D printing is kind of a Tuesday session, um, so we we put that kind of into those into that thing, so it fits into what we're doing. But three D printing, but this is you know more etching and so on and so forth. And I think it sounds like uh, Jason has played with it a little bit. And uh, yeah, good, Courtney. Yeah, a whole thing on laser engraving or uh, laser etching would be interesting. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Bill. And the more sophisticated graphics programs for that often have uh, libraries of different woods and different metals, and you can apply them. And then how you 3D stamp into those different things, the different uh, how you apply the geometry of a 3D simulation to different materials, I think is all would be interesting. That's there's a lot in there. Next question. And Douglas Carmichael is back again. Live graphics tools like Viz Artist. Yeah, I think that, that finding some of those tools would be really useful. I mean, I think that, and, and again, they may not be tools that all of us are going to use today or tomorrow, but I think that understanding where what we do, I think sometimes, uh, I remember, I, I always think of this conversation that I had with a big production company when I was just getting started. And I had an EX1, you know, like I was, you know, I worked on big films, but I was new to video. And my EX1 was 1080p and I couldn't, I was like, well, they were like, well, we, we're using grass with these ca- Grass Valley cameras and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, well, that's really expensive. And my EX1 is 1080p too. And they literally just stopped listening to me. Like there was nothing for that whole show that they were going to, that I was going to say that was going to matter to them <laughs> after that. And I didn't really understand it until later when I had big cameras and realized that there was a huge difference between um, a little camera that does 1080p and a big camera that does 1080p. And... And so I, you know, I think that it's always important, even though you're not going to use it, to understand what some of these larger solutions do and what makes them different and why you would use them instead of your basic system, because there is there are reasons to do that. Um, next question. Chris Sabato in Albany, Oregon. Any interest in data-driven graphics in Photoshop? Yeah. 
Um, yeah, and I think Chris, I'm guessing, does a fair bit of this. Um, and data-driven graphics, I think, in general is really interesting. You know, of, of um, you know, we've done things where we've used things like motion math inside of After Effects to grab databases of stuff. I've, I've done things where we, um, you know, grab onto data and actually drive, you know, drive cameras or drive virtual cameras with the data that came out of it. Um, and, and so there's a lot of different places that I think that we could go there that would be really interesting. So 100%. Uh, next question. Next question from Douglas Carmichael. Integrating Unreal Engine 5 Unity into live workflows. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think that, you know, figuring out, you know, the, the hard part with Unity specifically is that it's not, it's not really designed for interactive workflows and not live workflows. And so we can try to talk about Unity in that area, but Unreal is definitely done. And, and the, the reason is, is that Unreal really spent the energy a long time ago and kind of recoded five years ago, uh, what, or five or six years ago, that they would integrate with video pipelines. So 29.97, 59.94, and all the little bits and pieces that they have to do. So all the clocking and everything else, they figured out how to do that. And Unity decided not to invest in that area. They went to interactive only. Um, and they both just kind of took that path. So it's really hard to talk about Unity as much as far as an interact as working in the live workflow, but we, we could try. Uh, next question. Roz McNulty from Vancouver, Canada. How about asset management for web graphics, optimization, formats, loading time, the basics revisited? You know, I think we definitely make sense. I, I think that a lot of times uh, just understanding those basics is important. And we oftentimes are, people are throwing stuff up that's too heavy, that might be too too compressed, uh, those kinds of things. And what kind of file formats that were are the modern ones to use, I think would make a lot of sense. Next question. Hector Rodriguez from Springfield, Virginia, how to map an Excel spreadsheet data source to a graphic. Yeah, I think that's related to what Chris was talking about earlier, but I think that it's not taking necessarily a PDF, but it's taking data itself and animating those things. And, and it's really powerful when you get that right. And there are plugins, especially for After Effects, that do that really well, where you can grab that data and, uh, and push it through. Uh, next question. Adrian Watkins from Wellington, New Zealand. Folks working with LED volume stages like Mandalorian. Go ahead, Bill. Yeah, it's interesting to me from the time that we visited them on the show and some of our remotes, um, you know, if the geometry of the screen itself is changing all the time, how does that best get mapped from what the main scene is doing to the graphics that have to integrate on that? We're no longer on a flat two-dimensional plane where your graphics start out in one orientation and stay there. If the shot is moving, we've seen the coolest of the 3D graphics now follow the geometry of the shot. So how that back and forth uh, data flows would be, I think, very interesting. Yeah, it, I think that knowing also knowing what works and what doesn't work. I mean, there are times when you they, they literally you see them project green on it because they can't do what they want to do. They can't either. They can't decide what's going to be back there or it's too much graphics or, and knowing where those limitations are would be really fun. Uh, next question. From Todd Grains in Allen, Texas asking, how about a special guest on Affinity suite of tools? I think that'd be great. Uh, Affinity, of course, is kind of the, they have um, a Affinity photo and Affinity designer. Designer is kind of close to Illustrator. Photo, of course, is, is close to um is it photo? Uh, anyway, but it's, uh, I think it was yeah. photo. Um, yeah, yeah, it is. And then, um, and, and so, and designer is more like illustrator. And so I think those are, those are potential ones that would be really interesting. 
Uh, and I do, th- I use them about 80% of the time. I, I still have to go back to Photoshop for a variety of things, but, um, so I still have it, but I, I use Affinity as much as I can. And I, and I haven't used Illustrator itself for years. I mostly use uh, Designer for that. Uh, next question. Chris Sabato from Albany, Oregon. How about VMix's GT trailer or titler? Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think we just have to find who uh, knows that well enough. But if we can find some experts on the the, the VMix titler, I think that would be a definitely a great uh, great subject. Uh, next question. Next question coming up from Carolee uh, Johan de Sutter, excuse me, Fort Duchesne, Utah. Uh, blending Blender into previs post and live use or scenic. Yeah, and again, I think that these ones are, you know, I, I will say that like Blender, I think is a great subject and we just have to figure out who would know it well enough to talk about it there. So let's keep our eye out for, for what that might look like. Uh, next question. Juan de las Perdils uh, from Nikani, Oregon. How to make a dynamic interactive map for a treasure hunt event online and in person that's also going to be printed and shown live on screen? It's a pretty specific question. Um, yeah, I think that, but but thinking about how to build those, you know, I, I, I think what I'd probably do is um, I would think about how to build basic interactive tools for your phone um, and, and then look at how those tie back in or even using, I think that there's such a huge untapped market at venues to start using AR and integrating those things together that have different aspects of graphics and we're not really taking advantage of that yet. So I think it's, it's a really interesting uh, vertical right now. Uh, so yeah, it's great. Next question. Next one in from Courtney Gooden in Hollywood, California. How about an hour on free substitutes for Photoshop, Illustrator, etc.? Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I'm always looking for free stuff or open source stuff that I can put on multiple machines that I use that I don't have to worry about licensing. So an hour on, you know, where to find the best substitute for Photoshop or Illustrator, any of the graphics creation tools or manipulation tools would be uh, very helpful for me. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, it's funny, I, I kind of be the opposite because I just feel like um, when people do when I have free stuff, it just tends not to develop as fast. You know, like it's like it, it doesn't, you know, it, it, everything goes a lot slower than when it has a budget, you know, and when it has a team and when it has stability. And so that's that's always my my thing. But I think if we can find some, uh, I find that free is a is a cutoff that makes it hard to be good. Or um, how or how about an hour on how to get around the licensing issues for those programs that you pay a big license fee for, but limit you to specific piece of hardware for graphics creation because you, right. you may need sense. to move it around. Yeah, moving moving licenses. Next question. Douglas Carmichael asking, building templates for SPX and what WYSIWYG uh, editors can be used for it? I mean, in general, I think now that we've done a lot with SPX, I think having Tuomo on and just to talk about, he's talked a little bit about how things work, but I think having him come on and us building some stuff with him and and talking about it always makes sense. Uh, Next question. Rob Collins, Kansas City, Missouri. Tips and advice for someone just getting started with graphics. Yeah, I think that talking through a bunch of... um, Talking through the basics of graphics, the things you have to know, maybe all in one big day, 
that is just like, let's talk about resolution. Let's talk about, you know, vector versus, and then just answering lots of questions. You know, these are the things that we think that we, that you need to know. And then we can answer questions. I think would be a great, a great second hour. Go ahead, Bill. Well, and since we're a media-oriented show, uh, most people who learn about typesetting and the rest of these things do it for the print industry. That's where it comes from. Broadcast is subtly different in a lot of ways. So just uh, getting people up to speed on the fact that some techniques, very small type, very small kerning pairs and stuff like that, just don't translate. And what what are the limitations if you're designing for visual arts as opposed to print? What are the differences? What do you do? Next question. Douglas Carmichael asking effective use of keyed and SDI key fill workflows. I think that I agree. And I think it could also just be general keying footage. So we could talk a little bit about the different techniques that you use to key. So and and I don't know, maybe, maybe we've talked about these a little bit, but probably an omnibus that does luma keying and chroma keying and key fill and those types of things and understanding what, what are the advantages and disadvantages of each one could be a pretty useful um, second hour. All right. That was good. It, it's a shorter, a lot of these tend to be shorter than the, than the full length uh, show, but, but it's not because there's, there's so many. Uh, we just go through them a lot faster. So we, we went through, I don't know how many, but I think that we have uh, enough ideas for almost a, at least another quarter, uh, if not another year um, of, of content. So I think that was a, that's why we do these is to get everybody thinking about it and kind of processing um, uh, that. So, so I think that that would be um uh, good one. We have one more sneaky in here. Uh, what's the, what do we have here? Last Roscoe one. Jones from Madison, Indiana. What historical standards does a graphic person need to know? Do they need to know twenty nine nine eight? Yeah, yeah, just the basic stuff that you need to understand as a graphics person. I think would be useful. Twenty nine nine seven, actually. Um, thank you so much. Uh, twenty nine nine seven. Yeah, it's twenty three nine eight. Um, the uh, or nine seven six to be precise. Um, <laughs> Chris is like, what? Uh, anyway, um, thank you so much for all your suggestions. It's, it, you know, we can try to come up with this stuff, but the most effective way for us to do this is to stop about once a quarter and just hear out everybody and, and have a bunch of suggestions from the entire community. It's much faster and <laughs> we get better content. So, so we really appreciate uh, all the input from everyone uh, online and everyone watching both coming. We had some of these coming through the new um, askofficehours.com and some of them coming through Makana. And we really appreciate uh, all of your suggestions and we're going to, we're going to organize them into the groups and uh, see what we can't pull out and, and put into the, into the near future. Hey, can um, I insert you. props for Mitch today? Cause he got a couple of things that came in at the very last minute. I looked at them yeah. and I went, Oh, am I glad I'm not reading uh, today? So great job. <laughs> Mitch. <Yeah. laughs> Thanks so much to the, uh, um, uh, thank you so much to the panelists. Uh, we can't do this without you. And uh, it's, you know, it's funny, I, you know, because when we have six or seven people, when you think about any other event, having six or seven would be chaos. And here we're like, oh, it's a, it's a cute little group. Uh, and we and we had a great little conversation. And uh, yeah, it's, and so uh, uh, it's, it worked out well. So thank you so much for, uh, for all of your input. Um, thank you uh, to the incredible teams on the back end, uh, the, the production team that's actually 
doing this and putting up with the fact that about every about once a week we're like, and now we're going to add video rollout and now we're going to do this and now we're going to do that. And by the way, I thought that the graphic, the, the video was great. So great job by the IBC team of putting together that promo. It was a great play out too. I'm, I'm sure that there's a linkage there in the in the back end that we have to figure out how to make easier. So, um, but thank you so much to the great team on the back end that's figuring that stuff out, managing it, building those things, planning those, planning things like IBC um, uh, and also planning for all these second hours. Uh, thank you um, to the incredible production crew that that is actually running this. Um, and so it's, we really appreciate everybody. It's, it is truly a show that we all do together and we really appreciate everybody's contribution. We, the Tlaloc traversal, which is how many miles we would have had to walk or drive or fly to, to um, answer all these questions, 156,000 miles, 252,000 kilometers. And that is 1.241 billion bananas for scale. Let's go ahead and jump into after hours. 